This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The topic of today's episode is our update on U.S. growth and earnings forecasts and expected stimulus programs out of Washington. To give you an in-depth look on this topic, we're going to share a call that was held for clients earlier today with our top economists and strategists. That call featured Jan Hatzius, Goldman Sachs Chief Economist, Alec Phillips, our Chief Political Economist, David Merkel, Chief U.S. Economist, David Costin, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist, and was hosted by Allison Nathan, a Senior Strategist in the firm's Research Division. Now over to that conversation. Hope you find it informative. Good morning, afternoon, and evening to everyone. Thanks for joining us on this update call. We are going to provide an update on the U.S. Fiscal Stimulus Program and on our growth and earnings forecast both of which we've made large revisions to. On the call today with me, we have Alex Phillips, our Chief Political Economist, uh, Jan Hartzius, our Chief Economist, David Miracle, our Chief U.S. Economist, and David Costin, our Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. So with that, let's dive in. Alec, let's start with you. Obviously, Congress has been hard at work, but uh, nothing is quite done at this point. What is the latest on the U.S. fiscal package in terms of size and composition? Sure. Um, so in terms of uh, the, the details, as, at least as they stand right now, the overall size looks like it's in the range of 7% uh, of GDP or so. And so it's looking like $1.4, trillion in terms of the sort of the headline number of what the Senate looks like it'll consider potentially today. But with that said, it's important to keep in mind two things regarding that size. So number one, some of the fiscal resources that would be devoted to the COVID response would come in the form of financial guarantees and things like that, as opposed to sort of traditional, you know, demand side uh, side stimulus. So it's it's a little bit apples to orange co- comparing some of these provisions to other provisions. They're obviously all important, but somewhat different. And then second, not all of the spending would necessarily, or all of the the uh, sort of fiscal reaction would come necessarily in 2020. Sometimes, you know, these things do bleed over into the following year or the following couple of years. So while the numbers are clearly big and getting bigger, take them with a slight grain of salt just because sometimes they have an, you know, an incentive to talk about these uh, numbers that are maybe a little bit larger than they'll turn out to be. As far as the, the composition, it is similar to what we and others uh, were looking at late last week, but some things have been added. So the things that are are, are similar, uh, first, a small business uh, facility. Um, this is arguably one of the most important pieces of the legislation. Basically, what it would do is provide uh, loans to uh, small businesses, which are defined as businesses with less than 500 employees. And there's one exception to that, which is in the hospitality sector, so hotels, restaurants, et cetera, if it is a location that has uh, 500 employees, those loans would go through the banking system, be guaranteed by the Small Business Administration, 100% federal guarantee, and they would be given in size proportional to uh, specifically um, two and a half months of payroll expenses, wages plus benefits uh, would be the maximum loan size uh, under this program. Once the businesses have these loans, they would be eligible for loan forgiveness, so they wouldn't have to pay back uh, the loan proceeds if they have spent the entire uh, amount on payroll, 
mortgage, interest, rent, or utilities. So if, if they spend it, they have to pay it back. If they spend it on that, they do not have to pay back the portion of the rent on those things. Otherwise, the rate would be around 7%. So that whole program is worth uh, around $300 billion. It's similar to what was uh, being discussed last week, but it's changed a little bit. The thing that's uh, new related to business lending and the what this is airlines, air cargo, and aerospace specifically would be getting $75 billion across the three of them. So it's 50 for airlines, eight for air cargo, 17 for aerospace in loans and loan guarantees through the treasury, potentially with Fed involvement. Uh, and in return for that, we have a number of rules around employee retention and so on. In addition, and this is the particularly new part, uh, there's another $425 billion uh, that would be given to the Treasury's Exchange Stabilization Fund. The ESF would then capitalize, uh, provide capital for a number of facilities. That is still uh, somewhat controversial, not so much around the concept, but around the details. And so specifically, the problems that uh, some congressional Democrats have is around the open-ended nature of the Treasury's authority. So they can essentially do more or less whatever they want uh, with this money because the Exchange Stabilization Fund, where this money would be going, has essentially been around for almost 100 years. It's something that the Treasury has broad authority over. They always have. And so there's some concern about trying to limit what the Treasury can do with this money. And then beyond that, there's also uh, a number of questions around what constraints would be put on the companies receiving funding, specifically the airlines and and the ones receiving the more direct assistance around employee retention, executive compensation, buybacks, and so on. So I would say overall, it seems fairly likely to us that this kind of facility will be included. What's less clear is what you know constraints will be put on the companies that are actually borrowing. One other thing to note on that facility, when the Fed made their announcement this morning, they announced that they would be providing um, these credit facilities for primary corporate credit and then also secondary market corporate credit. But there was no announcement regarding municipal debt. In addition to the corporate credit facilities that the uh, legislation in the Senate would create, The Senate legislation would also allow for purchases of state and local uh, obligations as well. And so that is one big difference that the uh, legislation would make in addition to just the much more uh, substantial amount of resources. Beyond that, the other uh, two things I'll just mention, one is tax uh, relief for uh, individuals. This would come, I think, as most people are aware, through a tax rebate, $1,200 per adult with an income limitation of $75,000 for individuals, uh, $150,000 for uh, couples. And then the other piece is unemployment compensation. And so there, the bill would essentially add to the amount that every unemployed worker gets every week. So instead of getting uh, half their wages, roughly, which is the standard benefit, they would be getting half their wages plus another $600 per week. That's probably just on its own going to cost, you know, in the tens of billions, if not more than that. So that is also a pretty substantial benefit to individuals. And then finally, you know, the other uh, questions are around where there are omissions in the Senate bill that some Democrats would like to see. So the main omissions at this point, one is aid to state and local governments. The original uh, phase two bill that has already passed and become law 
uh, had about, um, we would estimate, $50 billion or so of aid to states through the Medicaid program. This bill doesn't have anything in addition to that. Democrats are likely to push for some additional fiscal aid to states, and my guess is that they will end up getting it. And then the other question is around uh, spending on the healthcare sector itself. The bill does have additional resources to the healthcare sector, essentially for hospitals dealing with all of this. It looks likely that there will be additional federal spending for the healthcare sector and probably other federal spending on top of what's already in this bill. So if you take those things, add it to what seems to already be there, you're getting to numbers that are more like 1.5, 1.6 at least. Um, So maybe I'll stop there in terms of the details. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Alec. We're going to move to David Miracle. We made some um, pretty large downward revisions in our U.S. growth forecast. Um, David, can you talk us through uh, that forecast revision? What's behind it? Yeah, thanks, Allison. So last Friday, we marked down our U.S. growth forecast to a quarterly annualized pace of negative six in Q1, uh, a negative 24 in Q2, plus 12 in Q3, and plus 10 in Q4. That would leave full year growth for 2020 at negative 3.8% on an annual average basis. This would be a truly historic decline. That Q2 number is two and a half times the worst number we have seen in a quarter in the modern history of the U.S. national accounts. Uh, We get to these numbers by estimating the likely hit through three channels. First, a reduction in the type of services consumption that require face-to-face interaction. Second, a reduction in building activity. Uh, And then third, a reduction in manufacturing due to reduced demand for goods, supply chain disruptions, and plant closures due to worker fears of the virus, which we've already seen take place at the automakers. Uh, We've calibrated these effects using very timely high-frequency indicators, which we've been sending out every Monday and Wednesday, uh, as well as a compilation of anecdotal data from press reports. Uh, We estimate that these effects sum to a nearly 10% reduction in the level of GDP by April. We assume a gradual normalization from there, with the virus drag fading by about 10% each month. That view reflects a combination of people learning to adjust and possible medical advances uh, without taking a strong view on exactly when a breakthrough might occur. These assumptions imply a negative 24% annualized growth pace in Q2, and because that number is so huge, even the slow normalization we pencil in implies big quarter-on-quarter growth rates in the back half of the year. These downgrades to our growth forecasts imply a major deterioration in the labor market. This appears to be happening very, very quickly. Last week, we aggregated dozens of news stories from state-level jobless claims reports, uh, and they reveal a huge and historic surge in layoffs over the last week. Uh, We think somewhere around two and a quarter million jobless claims were probably filed, which would be about triple the biggest week in U.S. history. Those numbers will come out Thursday. That will probably be the key U.S. data point for the week. Uh, In terms of the unemployment rate path, we expect it to eventually peak about five and a half percentage points higher uh, at around 9%. That is somewhat more than the usual empirical relationship between GDP and unemployment would imply, but we think that makes sense in these exceptional circumstances because the GDP hit is likely to occur disproportionately in labor-intensive industries that employ many low-wage workers and because businesses like restaurants and retail stores are facing an extremely abrupt disruption of cash flow that will force them to lay people off. That's all for me. Okay, great. Let's leave it at that for David. Apologies, we're having some technical difficulties with Jan joining the call right now. We're going to go straight to David Costin, who's also made a very large downward revision to earnings forecast for this year. David, can you please walk us through that? The, the third, what was the third cut is the hardest or 
something like that, most painful, would be great to hear uh, what's driving your view. Well, the music aficionados say the, uh, usually the first cut is the deepest, but the report we wrote on Friday, uh, <laughs> following on with uh, David Merkel's comment about the big GDP revisions, we've also lowered our S&P 500 earnings for the third time in a month. We're now looking for 33% decline for earnings in 2020 compared with 2019. Uh, it's a very significant decline, and it relates to the swiftness with which the economy has been deteriorating, which is why we've had these three different cuts. I had a couple of exhibits that I thought would be helpful uh, to show in the context of this. The first is, uh, is page number, uh, I guess it's seven, slide seven, which is the, uh, the volatility in the market. Uh, this is the U.S. equity market, realized uh, one-month volatility going back for 30 years. And you can see the concept that we are at extraordinary uh, peak going back to uh, 30 years. You've only seen this uh, previously in the financial crisis uh, at the end of 2008. So the idea of daily moves that have been uh, typically averaging 6% for the month of March uh, is, just a, is just extreme. And it is, uh, I think, illustrative of the fact that the information flow is still disjointed as to what's, uh, what's actually happening as more and more states have shelter in place and various other municipal and civil limitations on people working, moving around. And so on the, uh, the following uh, slide actually shows the path of the U.S. stock market as we envision it this year, which is we're already down 32% in a month. The idea of the market troughing sometime in uh, the latter part of the second quarter We'll get to uh, some reasons why that is the case uh, in a minute. But ultimately, uh, the economy does rebound in terms of economic activity, part of which, a large part of which, relates to the stimulus that Alec just spoke about, which is almost 7% of the U.S. economy coming through. And so that is a big, you know, one big, big reasons for that. But the idea on the following slide shows the path of overall EPS or earnings per share growth for the S&P 500. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why uh, the market is likely to go lower, and that is to say that the companies will not be reporting their results for another month. So most of the companies will report uh, between, concentrated between April the 20th and uh, roughly May the 2nd, uh, so that narrow period of time when most companies report results. Of course, some companies will be reporting sooner than that, but the, the dominant part, almost two-thirds of the, uh, of the market cap is reporting in that in that period of time and there's uh and there's an absence of uh real information they're going to be reporting their first quarter results but ultimately it's the second quarter that is uh i think the, the worst uh the nadir of the uh of the economic environment <clears throat> as you heard from david and also from an earnings perspective uh but ultimately we do get back uh later this uh this year in terms of the uh growth by the fourth quarter so the reasons for the u.s stock market to be going lower before it goes higher in part relates to uh, this exhibit where the consensus expectations still have to come down for investors to be some confidence as to what the earnings that they're paying for are likely to be. That's the first issue. The second issue was the idea of positioning of U.S. portfolio managers. If we look at the mutual funds and the hedge funds and the international investors and the retail investors and the pension funds and all the different ownership categories in the uh, U.S. equity market, we can see from the positioning relative to uh, how their, their, their ranges that they've typically uh, have exposed, they were at the peak level, almost two standard deviations above average at the end of February. Uh, and as of, uh, of last Friday evening, 
they were around one and a half standard deviations, having reduced their holdings, reducing their positions. But importantly, as you see in the troughs over the past uh, decade, other points in time when the market has hit a bottom, the sentiment has been particularly negative to the tune of two and a half to three standard deviations. So our conclusion of this is that there's still more selling pressure likely to happen. We see that in the prime brokerage data of uh, colleagues in the uh, areas of Goldman Sachs, where they have come down, but not necessarily as, uh, as much the degrossing has taken place. So we have the economic activity we're expecting to get better. We're expecting this still more selling pressure to take place. And ultimately, it will depend on a, a cresting of the number of new cases that are being diagnosed uh, or recognized uh, in the testing. So those are sort of three metrics that we would look for. In the absence of that, the market is likely to move downwards towards a level of about 2,000. The market currently around 2,300 or 2,275 today, uh, likely to move towards 2,000 level, but ultimately uh, rising back as investors begin to focus on the 2,021 profit outlook. And so for last year with $165, this year about $110, so down almost 33%, but rallying back very significantly for next year at about $170, which is uh, up almost 55%. And that is consistent with some of the experiences in a bear market, uh, an event-driven bear market, which we're currently having, clearly event-driven by the uh, by the virus. You absolutely get very sharp declines and then pretty swift rebounds. So Allison, I'll stop there and we can go for questions. Or Yes, that'd be great. Let's go right to webcast questions at this point. David Miracle, um, many questions about the risks to our views, uh, and in particular, how we think you know, the second half of the year will unfold. Can you give a little color on what we're assuming right now and what the risks are around that forecast? Sure. Um, you know, I would say in terms of uh, when we kind of go back to normal and what that implies about the risk to our growth forecast, for now, we've tried to take a relatively agnostic view on that by assuming that the virus drag fades gradually over time, that 10% of it drops off each month. Uh, I don't think of that as necessarily implying some big breakthrough in treatment or some major change in, uh, you know, in the virus itself. I think of that in part as adaptation and in part as kind of various gradual improvements on the medical side. Um, obviously, there's a lot of risk that, you know, to the to potentially to the upside, if you did have some treatment breakthrough earlier, um, that eventually when the bounce back comes, it will look a lot more sudden and sharper than what we have in there, just given the massive magnitude of the pullback uh, and the fact that, if people are suddenly willing to go outside, go to restaurants, go to stores, and so on, a lot of businesses would reopen much more quickly than is typical in a recession. In terms of the downside risks, one thing that worries me is that we're now seeing workers being afraid to go to work at places like uh, like auto plants. Uh, if that becomes more broad-based in the U.S., I think that would imply some downside risk. And uh, you know, that's certainly something we could see uh, at the automakers, for example, workers have basically taken in the view that hundreds of them touch the same parts on an assembly line. Uh, this is a dangerous environment to be in. We have made some allowance for that uh, in, our, in our forecast, but not for sort of a true broad-based shutting down of, say, construction and manufacturing, because everyone is fearful of, uh, of contracting the virus. Just a follow-on question to that, David, is obviously we have these pretty extreme jumps in unemployment now forecasted. Can you compare this? I mean, how quickly could those come down? And maybe this is 
also a question for Alec in a way, given the type of fiscal programs that are being put in place to, to temporarily support people who are being furloughed and laid off for a short period of time, it, can those numbers come back down quickly? Normally they don't. I mean, so there's a lot of questions about how this could evolve from a labor market perspective and then feeds into the economy. Sure. I think there are two questions here. One is how policy will affect the labor market numbers. And the other is, once we do start to recover, how quickly does that come back? On the policy side, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to be in the, fo- in the final bill yet. But I think there are two relevant provisions. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we already have in place some ramping up of the generosity of unemployment insurance. Uh, states are allowing more people to qualify for that. So if you're, say, a, a restaurant owner, who wants to be able to rehire his workers when all of this is over uh, and doesn't want to antagonize them too much, that higher replacement rate, that more generous unemployment insurance might make it a little bit easier for you to lay your workers off uh, and essentially put them onto the uh, on, you know, put those costs onto the government's budget. Um, on the other hand, it sounds like the bill will include some small business lending, uh, which will require businesses not to lay off workers. So I think there are, uh, you know, there are pressures in both directions. One would, uh, the first would encourage a higher unemployment rate, the second a lower. It's it's hard to see at this point which one of those will be more effective. But I think policy will eventually play some role in just how how much the unemployment rate rises. Uh, in terms of whether or not we would see a a bounce back that is quicker than we've seen typically? I think the answer is probably yes. So historically, we've never seen the unemployment rate come down following a recession by more than eight-tenths of a percentage point in a quarter. And that was in the early 80s when the recession was induced by a switch to very high interest rates and then suddenly a switch to very low. In more normal recessions, it takes even longer than that. What I think is different this time around is once people are suddenly willing to go outside, go to restaurants and so on, you you probably should see a wave of hiring of, for example, waiters uh, at businesses that had previously been shut down. So in terms of the rebound phase, when it comes, I think we can be more optimistic than, than history would imply in terms of labor market recovery. One more question for you, David, which relates to, you know, just to clarify that uh, our forecasts do embed sort of the magnitude of fiscal stimulus that's being currently discussed, as, as Alex said, in the 1.4 to 1.5, with lots of caveats. But that they do include that as well as these Fed actions. And, you know, if there's anything incremental we would expect the Fed to do or think the Fed should be doing in this environment. Sure. So Alec talked about what uh, what the Fed had unveiled this morning. Uh, our basic thought is that those actions are very helpful in terms of keeping the Uh, the corporate debt market functional. We would expect the final bill to make more funds available for these facilities so that the Fed is able to, um, you know, to operate at the size that it sees as necessary. Uh, In terms of your question about the fiscal stimulus, yes, that is included in our growth forecast. In fact, if you you look on the slides, I think it's on slide five, you can see how we build up to our overall growth forecast with a combination of accounting for those three different forms of virus hit to the economy that I mentioned earlier uh, on the downside, but then also the fiscal stimulus on the upside. Let me, um, so Jan has been able to join. Um, And so Jan, let me turn to you briefly because there are a number of questions about the global growth forecast. So why don't we hit it all together? Can we put the U.S. downward revision in, in the context of global and just give us a quick, you know, snapshot of what we're seeing globally at this point. And, uh, and we will, you know, get through a lot of client questions in that way. Well, we're seeing, uh, I think, a lot of similar things in a number of economies uh, with very large and very sudden stops to activity 
uh, in a lot of the places uh, outside of Asia. Asia is a bit of a special case, of course. China already had what we think is a 42% quarter-on-quarter annualized decline in GDP in the first quarter. But if you look at Europe and the US uh, and places like Canada and Australia, those big hits are uh, really going to come in the in the second quarter. Uh, and um, central banks and, uh, and governments are extremely active in uh, trying to combat, especially the, the, the second order effects of that big hit to activity. I mean, the first order hit is somewhat unavoidable, um, and it's not really something that, that central banks or fiscal policy can address. But, uh, but we're seeing that uh, you know, pretty much everywhere. In terms of where we are now for global growth, um, for 2020 as a whole, our forecast at the moment, the top-down forecast, is minus 1%, which would be a bit weaker than in the global financial crisis or the, the year following the global financial crisis when the GDP impact was most visible. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty deep global recession, but, uh, but really very, very front-loaded in the first half of the year, especially in the second quarter for most countries outside of, uh, outside of Asia uh, and outside of China in particular. Okay, great. Let's turn, um, David Costin, if you're still on. There are questions about that 3,200 year-end target, um, some pushback in terms of how we can know that, given that we don't know the trajectory of the disease in the economy, obviously. How are you thinking about risks around this, uh, around this view? Uh, okay, so just to clarify, it is uh, 3,000 as a level for uh, the S&P 500 at the end of 2020. Uh, and in part, at that time, uh, the equity market, we expect, will be uh, focused on the earnings prospects and the economic activity in 2021. And as you heard from David Merkel a minute ago and also from Jan, uh, the view uh, from Goldman Sachs uh, research is that we have the economy as a result of some fiscal stimulus, uh, a significant amount of fiscal stimulus, of course, uh, pushing through the economy, that does increase activity for next year. And that is really the underlying uh, force behind the idea of U.S. equity market recovering, part number one. Point number two is the relative valuation of the equity market compared with fixed income alternatives uh, still means that the risk premia for equities is extremely wide. Uh, bond yields have been uh, extremely volatile recently, but somewhere between 50 basis points and 1%, depending on the day, uh, means that the earnings yield for the market is uh, is, is extremely wide. Um, I'm expecting that it continues to widen between now and probably the middle of the year, but ultimately it will uh, decline uh, somewhat as the visibility uh, and expectations of growth in 2021 uh, improve. And so that's the thought process that we have. Uh, better economic growth, risk premium comes down, and the valuation of equities uh, looks particularly attractive versus uh, versus the uh, underlying uh, earnings growth prospects. David, while we're with you, another question on you know does the how will the election factor in at this point? Is it uh, is it even worth talking about, or do you expect to see the stock market still sensitive to that? I didn't uh, didn't even realize there was an election uh, happening. It's really remarkable how uh, just a joke, of course. Uh, just the, uh, the, the remarkable how fast things change inside of a month. Uh, you know, a month ago, everyone was focusing on uh, the idea of Bernie Sanders was going to be uh, sweeping into uh, into the Democratic nomination. Of course, that's 
uh, worse dramatically. And now Joe Biden looks to be the uh, the presumptive uh, winner of the nomination. Uh, the race is likely to tighten for the near term. The driver of the equity market is likely to be uh, you know entirely in the, in the in focused on the uh, the virus and whether the number of cases that are reported are uh, likely to eventually uh, decelerate and, and, and turn down. That's the, a key inflection point that we would uh, we would expect. Uh, so I know Alec, uh, hopefully he's still on the line as our political uh, economist can probably uh, address that, um, had been focusing as a strategist a lot on the prospects of a uh, of, of, of tax reform if you had a uh, potential for a unified uh, government, not clear what policy will be uh, you know, post uh, post the election, uh, really depend on the path of the, the economy. Alec perhaps has more to uh, offer on this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, just Maybe in Alec terms of... give two, two quick, you know, points on that or two quick minutes. Yeah, I, I mean, just in terms of the um, risks around the election, I would agree that Particularly for the equity market, it does seem like the the main issue uh, would be tax policy and and tax reform. I won't get into the specifics, except to say, um, under a um, an all democratic uh, uh, scenario, you probably would see um, uh, tax legislation that would increase the corporate tax rate somewhat um, under an all Republican scenario. You know, the discussion had been um, that we could actually see some additional. Uh, tax cutting potentially for, uh, you know, middle incomes. Unclear, frankly, what the prospect is for that now in that scenario, simply because uh, the federal government will have run such a large deficit um, this year. It's a little bit harder to see how you actually would see, a, you know, a, a, any further um, fiscal easing um, in 2021 uh, in that scenario. And then, of course, there's the scenario where you have a divided government. And in that scenario, I think, you know, probably not very much happens. With the caveat that so much, even of the post-election policy response, now really depends on what happens with the economy over the course of the next several months, and how Congress uh, and the administration, whichever administration, feel that they need to deal with, you know, continuing the response to this in 2021. So ultimately, it feels like that's going to be as much of a factor, even post-election, as the uh, the election outcome will be. Okay, great. Uh, maybe a question, two part for, for two answers from one from Jan and one from um, David Costin. Basically, there's just tons of questions about if this goes on for if we see massive mitigation measures continuing for six months or until we get a vaccine. What are we looking at from an economic perspective and from an equity market perspective? So, really, what is you know the worst case scenario playing out here? What would that look like? Maybe turn to you, Jan. On that. It would basically mean that there is no rebound and you keep significant parts of the economy shut down in uh, you know, many places, uh, since I would assume that this would apply in uh, large parts of the global economy. And you would, you know, I don't know if you would get additional negatives. Probably you'd get uh, some additional negatives because if this lasts for a long time, then the ability of the policymakers to uh, kind of prevent or or reduce second round effects uh, becomes weaker because you know resources get uh, get scarcer, and so you'd have to worry about you know significant negative multiplier effects on top of the shutdown. So it wouldn't just be the shutdown sectors. 
that would be uh, still shut down, but also other sectors where you then have kind of a dose of more Keynesian demand destruction uh, on 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 top of it. So yeah, it would be it would be quite a negative uh, scenario, obviously, though not necessarily. It wouldn't necessarily manifest itself in rates of contraction that are quite as high as what we're likely to see in the in the very short term. It's really more that you get a big contraction up front, and then you maybe get some additional, you know, modest uh, contraction on on top of it, and uh, you know that would um, that, that that might not. You know, look quite as bad uh, if you just focus on the on the sequential, but it'd actually be a really uh, very severe outcome, very very negative outcome. David Costin, how would you be viewing markets at that point? Well, I think there's a there's a couple ways to think about that. First, uh, I'm not an epidemiologist, but the idea of uh, a risk would be potentially like the Spanish flu, a second round. You could have a, a situation where there's a hiatus in the middle of the year, and perhaps uh, things are looking better there, and then you could have a re uh, a second round, if you will, in the fall, which would be, uh, that would be not in our forecast and not, not, not an assumption we're, we're, we're making, but that would be a, a big negative. And so the equ- equity market uh, would not have the rebound that we're anticipating, uh, would be one. Uh, again, qualifying my response of, of not being an epidemiologist, there is the idea of a herd immunity at some point. Uh, everybody will have gotten this, uh, this uh, not will have, but might have gotten the disease. And therefore, it's, uh, you know, people can go back to their, their I would say, renormalize their behavior and whether testing is more dramatic and therefore can, can isolate it. So those are some of the variables that, that I'm not really uh, you know, an expert to, to comment on. But from an equity perspective, if we think about uh, what, what the earnings prospects are, we are expecting uh, earnings to decline this year by 33% relative to a year ago, uh, and then re- rebound dramatically to by almost 55% to $170. So from $165 last year, uh, $110 this year, and then $170 for next year. So clearly, if, uh, if, a, uh, if the virus still is a drag on growth in the, in the country for the coming year uh, into 2021, we'd have far less earnings, and, uh, and therefore the market value, uh, market levels would be, would, would, would be much less. Uh, that is uh, again the assumption we're making is uh, is that there is a, is some some improvement. I just to um, just emphasize that you know I think it would be an extremely negative outcome. Um, and while we're not epidemiologists, so it does seem that that is you know quite an extreme scenario to have the same kinds of uh, shutdowns lasting for such a long period of time. So that certainly wouldn't be our baseline, you know. Despite the fact that we recognize there are you know some 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 clear downside risks to the idea that uh, over the next few months we'll get our our arms around this. We 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 do recognize this, but this is a somewhat extreme alternative in my view. The question was for David Miracle: What all of this means for the path of U.S. inflation? Uh, thanks, Allison. You know, it's it's a tricky one because it's hard enough to size the sh- size of the hit to supply and the size of the hit to demand, but ultimately the impact on inflation should depend a bit on the ratio of those two things. I think in the near term, we're very likely to see price declines on things like hotel stays uh, and airlines, which we're already seeing. Uh, we've compiled a 
tracker of high-frequency price data, which we include in our update of high-frequency economic indicators every Monday and Wednesday. Uh, and I think you know by the time you get the March inflation data, you'll probably see some early signs of that. Down the road, uh, our best guess is that this proves to be disinflationary. We base that assumption on what we've observed in other countries that have had similar larger shutdowns, but before the U.S. has had them. Uh, but it's very hard to know, and I think it comes back in part to that issue I raised earlier, of to what extent, for example, uh, workers are not willing to go to manufacturing jobs um, or other jobs that require them to be around other people in a way that might lead to shortages of goods as well, um, as well as the, hit, the obvious hit to demand. So probably disinflationary, but uh, you know, more complicated than your usual demand-driven recession. I just add one other thing to that, which is that you know this this to some degree uh, is going to illustrate our difficulty in really measuring inflation. I mean, if something, if if a particular service no longer exists, you can't you 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 know everything's shut. All the all the sit down restaurant meals are shut down. Um, then that's not going to show up in the in the inflation numbers. But in some sense, that's almost like a price of infinity for, for, for restaurant meals. Even if you really wanted uh, to pay whatever it takes to have a sit-down restaurant meal, you wouldn't be able to do it. But of course, that's the sort of thing that you can't incorporate in official inflation numbers. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in for our weekly markets update Friday morning, where leaders across the firm provide a quick take on markets and what's driving the latest volatility. This podcast was recorded on Monday, March 23rd, 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.